Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, frequently the things that you can do to support this podcast are leave a review on iTunes and also leave a review for our book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints at Desert Book and Amazon. Those are the things you can do to support this podcast, and as well as listen and share. As you may know, about 10,000 minimum listen to every episode, and that's really a credit to you, our listeners, and a credit to the guests that step forward and share these real, vulnerable, and honest stories. And that's just an honor to provide a platform for my guests. And I have one of those guests in my home today. Um, There's a great spirit just listening to this good man and um, I already brought a couple tears to my eyes as I'm hearing his story. Um, we said a prayer before we started, like I always do, and our prayer is just that this podcast will be helpful for you. You feel the spirit of insights will come into your heart and mind and how you can better support um, other people walking complicated roads or better support yourself and love yourself even better as you're walking a complicated road. Um, anyway, my guest is Tanner Robinson. Welcome to the podcast, Tanner. Thank you, Richard. I'm thrilled to be here. Tanner is going to talk about what he's coined the triple threat. And um, <laughs> as he's joked to some of his friends and joked to me, um, and just three um, things that have, are part of his life that potentially make his life as a Latter-day Saint more complicated, or life as a human a bit more complicated. He is an early release missionary, um, served in Taiwan came home after six months because of medical um, illness that is still with them, fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, yep. Um, we're going to talk about that. Um, so that's kind of two parts of his um, triple threat or just his unique road, early release missionary, um, and a physical illness that is still with him. And he's also going to talk about being bisexual. And we don't have as many guests that come on about talking about being bisexual. And I think this will be helpful for you, our listeners. Um, and sometimes we want to pigeon bisexual people and say, oh, you're really straight or you're really gay. And as I've learned listening to other bisexual guests, bisexual is a real thing and it creates its own set of um, unique, I don't want to use the word challenges, just unique um, road. That's not very good English, but I think as Tanner shares this road as a bisexual Latter-day Saint, um, tell us what you're studying at Utah State right now. Yeah, so I'm getting my doctorate of audiology. And just tell us how that came about. So um, growing up, I had some of my closest friends. They had a a daughter who was deaf, and then she got a cochlear implant. And for those of you who don't know what a cochlear implant is, it's for somebody who has um, a severe or beyond hearing loss. Making It's basically a device that helps them to be able to hear. Um, And that kind of got me interested in. And then later in high school, I um, was figuring out what I wanted to do. I wanted something medical. I'm terrified of needles and blood, and so I didn't want anything related to that. But I thought back to those experiences of, you know, being with the deaf community and deaf culture and thinking about hearing. I'm a musician, and so um, music is a big part of my life. And um, just kind of got interested in audiology and hearing and, and the impacts that that can have in other people. It's really cool. Um this is a career dedicated to helping people. Absolutely. And it's not a short education road. You're at Utah <laughs> State right now. Yes. 
Tell our listeners where you went to your undergraduate and what your um, bachelor's was in. Yeah, so I got my bachelor's in communication sciences and disorders from Idaho State University in Pocatello, Idaho. That's great. And you grew up in? I grew up in Boise, Idaho, so just not too far away. Let's talk about your mission. Talk about um, this illness. Talk about your mission and what led you coming home. Absolutely. So um, I served in, in Taiwan, the Taichung Mission, which is Mandarin Chinese speaking. Um, wow. <laughs> wow is right. Um, I was blessed in high school. I was able to take Mandarin Chinese. Um, and so I had a little bit of experience, which I think um, really blessed my life and really, really helped me. Um, I'll backtrack a little bit. Um, in high school, between my junior and senior year, I was in a major car accident. Um, and in this car accident, I think, is when I started experiencing physical pain. Um, I went to a lot of physical therapy, um, was seeing lots of doctors and, you know, chiropractors and everything. And we thought we had figured it out. I um, was able to manage, you know, my life. I had learned different physical stretches or, or things um, to be able to manage the pain. And it had mostly gone away. Um, so fast forward, I served, a, or I didn't serve, I went to a semester of school at Idaho State University before my mission um, and was able to get medical clearance and, and submit my mission papers, got my mission call, um, and I was so excited. Um, something that my family always jokes about and that I'll joke about is when I would say my prayers of where to go, I just wanted somewhere with a flushing toilet. I didn't care where in the world that went. But I wanted flushing toilets. And, I love that, and I happily got that. So I was, I was grateful, um, and I was excited to go um, Mandarin Chinese speaking. Um, the I got my mission call in October, and then I left in March. Um, in December, around finals time, there was a lot of stress, obviously, on college students. I was also a music minor at the time, and so I was practicing the piano a lot. Um, and while practicing the piano, I noticed that I started having some of that pain again. And it made me kind of nervous, but I had already had my mission call and I was so eager to serve. I was so, so eager to go there. It was something I had dreamed of all my life and it felt like the perfect call for me um, and for, for what I wanted. And so I just, I kind of ignored it. Um, it wasn't, it, the pain wasn't impacting my life a ton, but it was there. Um, fast forward in March, I went into the MTC, we were in the MTC for nine weeks, and I didn't, I didn't really have any challenges there. Everything, everything was going well. Um, we went to the island. I, I absolutely loved it. What a, a different, a different experience, different than anything I'd ever had. Very different from Boise, Idaho. Um, that's for sure. Um, but I, I truly, absolutely loved it. I remember just walking down the street and just feeling love for these people. Um, just filled with love. I struggled with the language, for sure, just like everyone. Why? <laughs> what caused you just to love the people? I just, I mean, I think it was a blessing from God, for sure. Um, I felt like... This is a group of people that's so different. So um, different. And you can't communicate with them very well at this point. No, I was terrible. <laughs> Um, they would look at I, my first Sunday, they, I had members who would try and talk to me and I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I've only been here for three days. And then they, um, realized and, you know, treated, they were treating me so wonderfully, but slowed down their speech and, you know, did their best to communicate. But you're right. I just, why would you love people that you have no idea, you know, much about who don't even know you? Um, 
And I don't know that I can really put it into words other than it was just love. I just want, I wanted to be there. And maybe that was the biggest part of it is I wanted to be there. Um, fast forward a few months. Um, it was a, My mission is largely biking. So we would bike everywhere. I don't really remember walking much, but it was mostly on bikes. And I had had a few times where my pain um, was challenging. I had brought some medication with me from the States. And so any, t- any day that I had that was a little rough, I just took that medication and then I was fine the next day. Um, until there was one appointment we had that was about a three-mile bike bike ride away. Um, and for whatever reason, on, on the bike ride back, when we were going back to our apartment, something just snapped. Um, and my body was just in really excruciating pain. And here I was biking in the middle of a foreign country, doing what I felt was right, um, and sharing love that our Father in Heaven has for people. Um, and so I had, my companion was so far ahead of me, but I was just trying to go and he realized, you know, I was left in the dust and we slowed down and, and eventually we got back and I thought, I remember getting home that night and I took a shower and my companion was like, are you, are you okay? Um, and I said, yeah, I'm just going to take my medication and I'll, I'll be fine. Um, and I really, I wasn't fine. And it was a challenging, a challenging road for me. I didn't tell my mission president. I didn't tell any one of the members. I just kind of had the attitude of bear down, grin it, and, and you'll be fine. You know, I had dealt with physical pain before, um, and I lived through it, and so I would be fine. Um, it wasn't until probably, gosh, the end of that transfer, so a month or so later, that um, I had a really bad day, and I was pretty much in bed all day. I was in just so much pain. I couldn't really do anything. And I had been praying and trying to figure out what to do. And I thought, okay, I finally need to tell my mission president, um, you know, this is becoming bigger than me. This is becoming a challenge I can't do on my own. And so I went to go and tell my companion that, you know, we need to tell my mission president. And he said, oh, I already texted him this morning. He already knows. Um, and I thought, you know, there's some wisdom in that in that mission companion who who recognized the challenge that I was going through and saw that I needed help, and I appreciated that. Um, it was, I knew, deep down I knew that where this road was going was that I was going home. I knew it was not something that I was going to um, figure out while I was there on a mission, but I was stubborn <laughs> enough to get every last second out of it that I could. Um, and so... My mission president found out, um, and then we talked with missionary medical. We talked about getting a different bed or doing different things to try um, and make my life easier so that I could still serve as a mission, as a missionary. Um, And so we did some things and and tried to figure it out, and eventually um, my mission president had me come to serve in the mission office because things just weren't, weren't going well. I was really in a lot of pain, and... I wanted to be there so bad, but I wasn't, I just wasn't doing well. I wasn't able to live a missionary life. And so I went to the mission office and it was, the mission office is just down the street from one of the best hospitals in Taiwan, which I thought was a, a huge blessing um, to be close to medical care. And so I was going and seeing doctors there and um, getting x-rays and just trying to figure out what was going on um, because I was in a lot of pain and there wasn't really answers. I mean, I had experienced it before, not to this caliber though. Um, and so we didn't really have 
true answers. Um, and then it came to the time where we were sending um, x-rays and things to Missionary Medical in Salt Lake um, for them to start to make the decisions. And um, I remember we had, I, I was lucky enough to be able to go to the temple in Taiwan two times, first at the very beginning, um, and then right at the very end. It wasn't um, really scheduled, but we were going up to Taipei, so it was in the other mission, Taipei. Um, and we went to that temple, and I remember being at the temple and sitting in the celestial room after we had done a session. And, sorry, I was really struggling. I was in a lot of pain, and I was really frustrated. I was frustrated with Heavenly Father. I was frustrated um, with my situation because I had put so much work and effort to be there, and it wasn't working out the way that I had wanted it to. And I remember sitting in that celestial room in a very strong prompting of, you're going to serve in Boise next, which was not the answer I wanted. Wow. Sorry. It was not what I wanted, but it was what I needed. And so it was this interesting juxtaposition of comfort, but of also, gosh, feeling like a failure in a lot of ways worried about my family. Um, I guess I should mention, I had not told my family or anyone at home that I was going through a lot of, through this pain until I was moved to the mission office. Um, and my mission president had made a mention of, you know, you, you might have to go home. And I thought, gosh, I don't want to just show up at the airport. <laughs> um, I should probably tell my parents at least what I'm going through and that, you know, going home early is a possibility. And that was, that's kind of a theme for me as I, I shouldered things a lot on my own rather than reaching out um, and something that I'm still working on and learning. It's a big and a hard lesson for me, um, but a good one. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, I remember being at the temple and having that and then going back to the mission office um, and having a conversation with my mission president, talking about things and Basically, the consensus was I needed to go home, and I didn't know when that was, um, but the next day we were traveling a bit, and I got a call from him. Um, I said, pack your bags, you're going home tomorrow. Wow. Um, and I remember being in that van, we were probably two hours away from the mission office, and just, I didn't know how to feel. In some ways, there was relief, because I didn't um, have to continue to put that expectation of a missionary life on myself, um, but a lot of disappointment and a lot of, I think I feared that I hadn't measured up the way that I had of expectations of myself and as well as um, those that God had for me. It's honest. Um, I worried that I would, I would go home and, you know, other people would think, well, he just, he couldn't make it for whatever reason. Um, and I knew deep down in my heart, I think I had hope that maybe I could go back out, but I knew, I just knew that that wasn't God's plan for me. I just knew that, like I said, I had felt in the temple, you were going to serve in Boise next. And so that's where I was going to go. And so I did. So I went home. Pretty honest story. Um, thanks for being so honest and vulnerable and just your honest feelings about yourself and honest feelings about how this would be perceived by others and how this would affect your future. 
Talk about getting a diagnosis, because I think at this point you're still in Taiwan and everybody understands you need to go home. But talk about how you got the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I came home and we were, we were seeing lots of different doctors. I was getting blood tests done, having MRIs done at one point. They thought I had multiple sclerosis, and that was kind of a scary thing to face and see what was going to happen. Um, so I came home in September, the middle of September, and I got um, diagnosed just before my birthday in December. And those were some really hard, hard months. It was frustrating for me because I was in bed a lot of the time. Um, and when you're in bed, you just have a lot of time to sit and think um, and think about how different my life was. On the flip side, if like I said, I remember that I'd been asked to serve in Boise. And so I served with the missionaries that were in my home ward. That's and I cool. drove them around. They didn't have a car. And they needed a third male sometimes to, you know, visit single sisters or to go into homes. And um, <laughs> that winter was also dubbed Snowmageddon in Boise. It was a terrible, terrible winter of snow. And I probably shouldn't have done a lot of things that I did. But I went out and I shoveled walks with the missionaries. And we talked to people and... It was a way for me to still serve um, and get outside of myself. And so it was, it was, again, that interesting juxtaposition of here I am serving and I love what I'm doing, but also my body is not functioning the way that I want it to be, which was really frustrating. It, tell our listeners what that illness is and is it a lifelong illness or is it solvable and, and maybe just, yeah. So it's a chronic pain syndrome. Basically, my entire body can feel different kinds of pain at different times. Um, I, I have been in constant pain since that July 2016. It's kind of weird to think. I don't know that I can really remember what that's like to not be in pain. It's just my new And that's normal. back on your mission. Yep. July 2016 was back on my mission. That's the three-hour bike ride. Yes. That's the beginning of yes. this. The Got beginning it. of the journey. Um. I currently take medication to manage it. It is lifetime, you know, um, syndrome that I will that I will have and I will always um, struggle with. Um, but obviously, I've figured out ways to manage it. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't be in grad school getting a doctorate degree right now. And so, I've definitely come a long way from that time of my life. Is there hope that illness will be cured in your lifetime, or do you just um, say, "My, I'm gonna." Think about just managing this and move forward. You know, I think that's an interesting question to have. There's so much else in my life that I have that I don't, that I just manage it and I just take it day by day. I don't know that I really have hope for it to go away or not. If it does, that would be great. Um, but there's just so many other goals and things in my life that I put my focus on that. Does this change your life expectancy? That's, well, that's a great question. I think, um, I don't know the research on that. Um, I don't think that it is a progressive okay. um, disease. Um, like MS that would, is. Yeah, like multiple sclerosis or something. Um, I don't I don't think that that's what it will be. So. Yeah, that I don't, I'm not trained, but that would be my hope is that this is something that doesn't affect your mortality, but it's something yeah. you have to deal with in mortality. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thanks for sharing that. And we have early release missionaries on the podcast, and I think you've done as good a job as sort of articulating the pain you felt 
um, not the physical pain, <laughs> but just this box you were in and, and your desire to be in Taiwan and how you had worked and planned and hoped and loved the people. And this was out of your control to stay in Taiwan and taking us to the celestial room and the pain you felt there, but the personal revelation you received and, and just honest feelings about yourself, you know, and in our culture, we can think our culture can be hard on us, but I think it sometimes causes us to be harder on ourselves than we should be. Absolutely. So it was a great segment. Um, I'd love to talk about your sexuality. Yeah. Um, if, and if you're ready to go there, but I don't, if, I don't want to rush you if you want to talk about any of these other chapters or stories. I'm sure that will still come up, come up again because my sexuality was definitely intertwined. Um, yeah, go ahead and just explain that, that then. Um, I I would say I definitely knew I was I had attraction to men probably when I was around 12 or 13. Um, I also had attraction to women, um, to girls. I had crushes um, on both and. I went through this time of my early teens and, and teenager years of really trying to figure that out. Um, and I did it alone. I didn't talk to anyone. I did that completely alone. I didn't have friends that I talked to, didn't have family that I talked to. I didn't even talk to God. I really, truly did that alone. And there were times where I thought, man, am I straight? But like, this is just puberty. Um, just, you know, figuring things out. Am I gay? Do I just have attraction to men? And I went through different times. I would have people growing up, they would ask me, are you gay? Um, and I was like panic mode, um, went to him because I didn't, I didn't know. And I had had so many, heard so many negative jokes or connotations about gay people that it, it brought me shame. Um, honest. I remember a time in middle school, I was, um, I think I was in eighth grade and I had felt someone brush up against my back, but I didn't think much of it. And I had been walking around the school and one of my friends came up and was like, do you realize what this paper is on your back? And I was like, no. And they showed me and it had big words or big letters that said, I'm gay wow. on it, on the back of my shirt that I'd been walking around, you know, in school. And I had, um, it's it was traumatizing. Annoying. Absolutely. It was traumatizing to me. And it made me so shameful of any any thoughts or attractions towards men that I may have had. Um, and I think that, like I said, I was I did it all alone. And I think that might have been a big part of it because here I had people questioning or trying to label me and I didn't I didn't know myself um, or how to deal with it or how to handle it. Probably when I was um, later in high school, I'd probably say about 17 or 18 is when I was comfortable. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say comfortable, but I figured that I was bisexual um, because I had had, you know, girls that I had gone on dates with that I really liked, but I also was attracted um, to men. And at that time in my life, I definitely just told myself, it's fine that that's how it is. You'll just marry a woman. You'll just live, you know, the picture perfect um, LDS lifestyle and, and you'll never have to deal with it. Um, it just won't be an issue is kind of what I told myself. Um, on the flip side of that, I also was dealing with a lot of shame because anytime I did have, um, attractions towards men, physical or emotional, um, it was, I was not guilty, but shameful of that. Um, and shameful of who that might mean that I am. 
as a person, um, which is really, you know, it's not a great feeling. I, I can genuinely say that I thought there were times that I hated myself and hated um, that part of myself. It took a long time to get over that. Did you get suicidal pre-mission? Um, I was never, I've never been suicidal in my life, um, but I would definitely say, like I said, I, I hated myself and I would hate um, that part of my life. I would often visualize myself um, almost playing the what if game. What if I wasn't bisexual, man? How, how much easier life would be? Or on the flip side also, what if I was gay? You know, in some ways that seemed easier too, because it felt like less of a choice to me. You're just doing such a great job of being so honest and vulnerable and authentic. And our listeners, a lot of them would just love to give you a big <laughs> hug right now. <laughs> Talk about, this is a question I don't, it just came in my mind. What was your very safest place given in high school? Where, was it alone at night in your room? Was it with your gifts? I think you said music. Was it with friends? Where was, was it church? Where, where was your very safest place? You just felt the best. Mine was definitely playing the piano. Um, I'm sure my parents will <laughs> laugh and, and just, they know that, and if I was having a stressful day, I was on the piano. You would find me playing because I could escape for a little bit. Or it was a way for me to express my emotions without having to talk to anyone. I could express being sad or frustrated with being bisexual, but I didn't have to use words and nobody really had to know that that's what. I was dealing with in a way it was a way to hide even to hide from God and hide from myself would you make up stuff on the piano or would you play set songs <laughs> so I was never much of a composer but I did um, I loved playing the hymns I loved arranging the hymns um, and also my great-grandfather was a, a pianist and an organist um, and I heard great stories about him and he had his music, and so I would play some of his music to somewhat feel a connection to him, but also um, just play songs that felt authentic to me. I love that you had someplace safe. It's a great thing, listeners. I think if if I think we all just need our safe places, and and that can be very individual um, for each of us. It can be alone can be with a musical instrument and a big group. It depends on our personalities. Hopefully, um, church is a safe place and a relationship with heavenly parents. I think I know the answer to this, but why didn't you talk to God about this? I didn't talk to God for a long time about this because I was so ashamed, and I was also worried about what it meant, what it would mean long term. Um, and I also... Something I really struggled with, and I know lots of other people have this question, is, is bisexuality a choice? Um, more so than if you're straight or gay, for it to be a choice. And then your life path just seems much more of a choice. Um, and I was scared of having to make that choice, but I also felt like if I brought it up to God, then that mean that I had to face it myself, and I was not... I would have rather done anything, anything else, which is, I mean, I would have rather faced my chronic pain. I would have rather faced coming home early from a mission. I would have done anything rather than to face being bisexual. So talk about where you are, because 
right now you're on a podcast. About 10,000 people are going to listen to this, yeah. and you're talking about your sexual orientation. So just talk us through, you know, where you were and where you are and, and that journey. Two very different places. Two very, very different places. Um, like I said, before my mission and even after my mission, I was very much in a place of no one needed to know. God didn't need to know. In fact, I probably thought myself I didn't need to know because I could just live a life without it being an issue, um, without other people having to know or make their own judgments or me having to make my own judgments about it. Um, I came home from a mission early and, uh, I was so, I was frustrated with heavenly father because I felt like not only like with that triple threat, not only did you send me home early for something that I had worked so hard for, that was a good cause that I was doing good things for people. But then you made my body break down when I was 19 years old, um, to where it just wouldn't function and I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. And I had to quite literally suffer in pain. And then to add the cherry on top, you made me bisexual in a church and in a, um, and in a setting that didn't feel that accepting to me, if I was being honest, um, and didn't feel that welcoming. And that was frustrating. And there was times that I was angry, um, but mostly frustrated because I think I didn't understand and I didn't want to face it. I'm going to interrupt you right here. Yeah, absolutely. Just a question. Did you think um, part of the reason you came from your mission and it didn't work out the way you hoped is because you were bisexual? I think the thought definitely crossed my mind, um, but I felt like... Because if I were the dark force in your life, or that's the thought I'd put in your brain yeah. if I really want to bring you down to a really dark spot, which is not true, but I just wonder if that thought came into your brain. I think it absolutely went through my mind, but if anything, it felt more a blessing of healing wouldn't come to me because hmm. I was bisexual. Ergo, I came home early. So just to understand, a blessing of healing from your illness that was undiagnosed in Taiwan, that it, it wasn't working, you weren't being healed because this was broken and this brokenness part of you was preventing the whatever was going on from working and you couldn't tell anybody that you were thinking that. Absolutely. I mean, I was broken. I felt broken. That's a, in fact, and those I, were kind of all related. It was uh -huh. hard to separate those. Yep. It's just one sort of, I'm feeling really broken right now. Yes. And I studied a lot about broken and brokenness in the scriptures Wow. Um, wow. to try and figure that out because I felt truly broken. Um, this is digressing a little bit, but I had felt, I, I like visualizations. I think they really can help us and they helped me a lot. Um, like I said, I loved being on the piano and I felt like in my teenage years, coming home early from a mission, dealing with chronic pain, being bisexual, that I slowly, I had this piano in front of me and I slowly was having these keys damaged or pulled off um, to where I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't play the music that I wanted to play, so to say, and that it sounded terrible. And I kind of felt clunky. You know, I was maybe playing songs, but not all the notes were there, and so it sounded bad. Um, it felt bad to play. Um, 
it wasn't um, harmonious, I think is a great word to use. Um, and there were just little times and little experiences, whether it be, you know, that time in middle school with paper on my back or um, hearing friends at church say things that weren't um, kind about being bisexual or going on dates and girls telling me, oh, I won't date an early return missionary or I won't date someone with a health illness because then I'm going to have to be the breadwinner and you're just going to sit on the couch all day. Um, and I slowly felt those pieces on the piano just chip and chip away. And I felt broken, absolutely, until um, I finally decided that I wanted to take it to God and to have those pieces put back together. Um, and that was kind of a journey within it itself, absolutely. It started, I had one friend that was bisexual that came out to me, and so I came out to them and said I was also bisexual. Um, and that was probably the two years after my mission, maybe. I think I was 20, 21, or no, I was probably 22 when that happened. Um, and that was my first experience in my life of being able to kind of share that burden um, with someone. And I felt comfortable and able to do that because they had come out to me first. They were bisexual. I hadn't known that I can remember anyone else who was bisexual. They were either straight or gay or lesbian. There was no one else who was bisexual. And I think I really needed that. And that was a big um, blessing for me and something that um, I feel like God really put in my life um, to help me because he knew that I was broken um, and really struggling. Um, he, like I said, he and I... Um, talked a lot about how to navigate. He's also a member of the church, and so we talked a lot about navigating um, being in church um, and the gospel and being bisexual and, and what that means, what that it means for as being a child of God, an eternal perspective, and just asking and, and working through those hard, tough questions that you can't just open up the lesson manual or open up preach my gospel and point, and, and there's the answer. It's just not there. Um, my, I, when I was 22 and between, I had graduated with my bachelor's degree and then I was getting ready to start my doctorate. I lived at home with my parents. Um, and there was a, a night that I was talking to this friend about being bisexual and some of the challenges and things that I was going through. And I didn't know that my mom was downstairs where my room was. And so this is probably midnight or one in the morning and she heard our conversation. And so that's kind of how my parents, um, found out that I was bisexual. They sat me down the next day and asked, you know, about things, and we had a great conversation. They were, I bawled so much. Were you glad this conversation happened? <laughs> if you would have asked me that night or that, even probably a few months later, I would have told you no, that I was mortified that that conversation happened. Um, I was absolutely mortified because I felt like now that my parents knew that I actually had to face it. It was something that was real. Um, it was something that I remember telling my mom and crying and being like, well, now that you guys know, my future wife, she's going to have to know. And everyone else is just, they're going to have to know. And it was something that I didn't even want to accept myself. So how could others accept me when I couldn't even accept myself for it? Um, like I said, my parents were great and loving um, we all cried. We all hugged. My parents reminded me how much they they loved me. 
there were obviously questions of, well, what does this mean for church-wise or gospel-wise or, or your life-wise? And I mean, at that point, I hadn't even really accepted that I was bisexual and what that would mean. So I didn't have any, any answers. Um, and it felt awkward for me. I think it felt awkward for my parents in a lot of ways. I won't speak for them, but I felt awkward um, and uncomfortable. And it wasn't anything that they did or said. It was just kind of the situation. It was, you know, this big secret that I had kept for years that had broken me was now on the table. Um, just to comment, sometimes parents learn something um, like your mother learned about you that wasn't sort of permission-based. It was sort of by accident. I don't think she was trying to learn something. <laughs> and I don't think you were obviously inviting her to learn something. It just happened. So I think, you know, parents sometimes reach out to me and say, should I, I think I've got an LGBTQ kid or I've overheard something or somebody said something, should I approach my kid? And you probably haven't a feeling. My feeling is you as parents, there's no right answer for that. You've got to figure out some, it's better just to lock that information in the back of your brain and wait for your kid to process that with you on their timetable. But other times it might be um, okay, like your parents did, even though it was painful, um, that they did talk to you about it the next day. Um, do you have any advice for parents on that issue? Yeah. Um... Like you said, it's going to be an individual approach. Seek direction from the Spirit and from Heavenly Father. I think he'll, he'll be a great source. What I would say is even if if you suspect anything or even if you don't, I think this rings true for anything, whether they're LGBTQ or not, but that I know that if one of my parents had sat me down or we were just in the car or something and said, you know, if, if you like men, that, that's okay. I still love you. And you'll still be welcomed in our home. I think if there were those types of comments or thoughts or, you know, if you struggle with pornography, if you struggle with depression, anxiety, it's going to be okay and I'm here for you. I feel like those baby steps maybe would have led it to be more of a permission-based type of, type of a situation where I would have been ready to talk to my parents about it versus it just being there. It's good advice. Now I'm grateful that they did it because I feel like it really put me on the trajectory that I needed to be on. If that had never happened, I don't think I would be sitting here wow. today. Keep telling your story. <laughs> so, And I realize the logic is fascinating as I'm listening to you. You say, okay, now my parents know I have to tell my wife. Um, it's just sort of like, you know, this isn't, beyond just my story and my brain and my friends who's bisexual you're talking with. And so it changed everything for you um, in a painful way and in a good way. So just keep telling your story. Yeah. Um, in the months that happened after that, a lot of, there was a lot of soul searching. Um, there were some hard questions um, that I had, hard questions that my parents had, hard discussions. Um, that my parents had, I think, I have an aunt that's a lesbian, and so we have, my family at least has exposure to that, but I think it was different when it was my parents' child um, in ways and different being bisexual um, and how to, how to navigate those things. I didn't tell anyone else. It was just my parents for probably about 
six months or so. And then I told a couple of friends and I told my sister. Um, and my sister was great. She's one of my best friends. Um, and she has loved and supported me and just been someone that I have, have needed in my life um, along with my parents. And so I'm grateful for that that support and that blessing because I know not everyone has that. I will say like it, it's been challenging for people. It's been challenging for uh, my family to accept and understand. Um, and there definitely still is in some ways a mourning process that is going on, a mourning of who, um, of the life that maybe other people saw for me. Um, and I empathize with that because I went through that myself of figuring out what does my life look at and um, how that's changed. Um, like I said, I had told my sister and a few other friends and they were all great and supportive. Um, I didn't really have anyone who had any negative things to say, which I really appreciated. They were all, um, you know, we'll, we still love you. Um, nothing has changed. Um, and then naturally they would just go into asking questions about how it affects me um, and my life. The, the group, the big event, I guess you might say, is when I came out to, um, you know, my roommates and, and other friends, you know, my ward, my bishop, um, all of that. And that was somewhat earlier this year, actually. Um, and I, I had been praying a lot about what God saw for me, what, what I saw in my life, what I believed. I was questioning a lot of things um, of the church. Um, questioning a, thing, a lot of things in my testimony, of things that I felt like beforehand I had just always accepted as truth and I had never really done the work of what I believed or not. Um, I uh, This is somewhat connected to dating because dating was an in, has been an interesting experience for me. Like I had mentioned before, I had girls who had said, oh, I won't date you because you're an early return missionary. Um or I won't date you because you have a chronic illness. I don't. I don't want that in a future partner. Um, and those were really painful for me to take because I felt like it was looking at parts of me that I couldn't change. You know, if she would have said, you're mean to other people or something else, I felt like it would have been a little bit easier for me to accept. But it was things that I couldn't change. And I thought, gosh, if I can't even get someone to date me because I'm an early return missionary or I'm fibromyalgia, they're really not going to like that I'm bisexual. Like that's really going to be just make dating impossible for Another me. thing you can't change. Another thing that I, and to me, a huge part of, of who I was and an eternal part of who I was, because I've definitely, as I've prayed and, and thought about this, I feel like this is part of my eternal identity. It's not something just for this earth life. This is part of my eternal identity and the way that God created me, um, which is powerful. And it's hard when that's something that you believe and is part of you for that to be rejected. And so that was terrifying to kind of bring in dating wise. Um, something that I know a lot of, a lot of people in the church and that I've talked with my parents about is, you know, in dating, it feels a lot more like of a choice because you have the option to date women or to date men. Um, and so it seems like, well, why wouldn't you do the easy thing to just date women, marry a woman? And like I said, I had told myself before, just do that for the rest of my life. 
you know, it wouldn't need to be something that's public, wouldn't need to be something that's um, out with other people. And so I dated, and I dated a lot. When I went to, when I moved to Utah, um, I felt like in Logan, there's just, there's this large population of members of the church. You know, there's a, a large institute program, so many stakes, big wards, a lot of active people. Um, and so I thought I'll just date around um, and something will happen. In fact, I started, I was going on so many dates that I, I lost the purpose of dating because I wanted this miracle of this perfect girl who would accept all of these things that I can't change about myself um, and who would be, but I could still live fully in the gospel and everything. And I started going on dates with girls basically just because they were a girl, not because I was interested in them. Um, there was one time specifically, I remember I was on a date with a girl. She was really nice. We were having a fine time. Um, and at this restaurant, I saw a guy that I thought was really attractive. And he just looked like he was having a lot of fun. And in that moment, I thought, man, I wish I was on a date with him. Not that I was on a date with her. It's honest. And that I felt so guilty in that moment because I had felt like I was trying to force a lot of things. I was trying to force um, a relationship with a woman. Not that that wasn't possible because I had girlfriends before then and, and relationships that I was really happy with, some that I thought could possibly have led to marriage. Um, it never did, and, you know, that's fine. But I had had that experience, and then, like I said, I found myself in this place of, oh, you're a girl, let's go on a date, and maybe Heavenly Father will make this miracle happen. When in reality, I then realized I should be going on dates with people that I want to be with. That's fair and honest and authentic to them, and it's fair and honest and authentic to me. It's not. Um, it's not being. It's using all the keys on the piano, for me. It's not picking. Oh, I don't want this one. Thanks, but no thanks. Using all the keys on the piano. Love that. Um. And so kind of at that point, I had really started praying and seeking guidance on if I should date men or not. And that was a really hard conversation for me to have with God. And it was really at this point, I would say, that I had finally started and opened that door and talked to God about being bisexual. Um, I had never used those words. With Heavenly Father, I would just say, oh, I'm really struggling and I think you know what it's with, <laughs> which worked for a little while, but it's not being completely honest. Um, and because I wasn't being completely honest, I felt like a lot of um, that connection with Heavenly Father, a lot of connection with the Savior was closed. Um, Interesting. It's a really important principle. Absolutely. And it was scary. It was scary to open up that door. It was scary to be like, Heavenly Father, I know you already know this about me, but I'm scared and terrified and I'm worried about where this will go and I'm worried about what answers you tell me. Because any path seemed to have its challenges. If I chose to only date women, that has its challenges for me. If I chose to date men, that opens up a slew of challenges for me. Um, and it opens up social 
challenges. You know, we're not just talking about my relationship with my Heavenly Father, but my relationship with my roommates, my relationships with friends, my relationships with my extended family, who at this point still didn't know that anything was going on. Um, but on the flip side, like I said, I would have those dates that I wasn't really interested in. It was just kind of going through the motions. Or I would have other people who would say, oh, we just need to find you the cutest girl for you to live with or for you to marry and, you know, build build a life with. And I just thought, yeah, like that would be good. Like I'd be open to that if that were to happen. But also I wouldn't mind if that was a man either, if that was fulfilling and that was, you know, building that companionship and, and me being happy and me being authentic. You know, that didn't seem so bad to me, but it was still scary. So I would say at that point, earlier this year, when I had finally realized and been praying and felt like, you know, God was okay with me dating men and opening that door and seeing where that path goes, that I felt like I had to tell everyone. Because if I had a boyfriend, I didn't want it to be a situation where you sit six feet over there, um, don't talk to me, don't really look at me, and then, you know, when we're in the car, we'll hold hands. That felt very inauthentic, um, disingenuous to them. It felt um, broken, really, is what it felt like. Again, not using all of those keys. Um, and so we told my family, we told, um, I called my parents up and I said, tell everyone. Um, and I called friends, I texted some friends. We uh, had a little, I invited friends over to my apartment that night. Um, and we had a cake that said, surprise, I'm not straight. <laughs> wow. Um, and we just, I just came out to everyone. I told classmates. I have a, um, a close mentor with the university, and I told her, and I just kind of told everyone. And it was absolutely freeing. I felt like my hands had been tied behind my back, and finally... Um, I was, I was free and I didn't have answers to everything. I still don't have answers to anything, everything. Um, and I don't expect to have answers to everything, but I finally felt, um, felt free. The truth will make you free. And I felt like my revelation from heavenly father poured from heaven. I finally was getting, um, Love, really, is what it was. I finally felt loved by Heavenly Father, loved by my Savior. I felt understood. I felt validated. Um, I felt peace. For a long time, I did not have peace, but I finally felt peace. Um, I remember, I hope my mom's okay with me sharing this, but I had called her the day after I had told her, you know, you can tell all, our, all of our family um, and at that time, I also told him, you know, I'm going to start dating men. I don't know where this path will take me, but I feel like this is that Heavenly Father's okay with that. And that's the next step for me in my journey. Um, and it was really hard, really, really hard, I think, for my parents, um, even though they had known for over, you know, a year and a half now that I was bisexual, I think that door opening was was difficult. And I had called my mom and just said, you know, how are you doing? Because I knew that it was challenging for them. It was challenging for me, but I'd kind of already gone through it. Um, but I'm empathetic and understanding that other people need time too. And so I called her and said, how are you doing? And she says, well, I don't, I don't know, which was honest, 
and I think raw too, you know, because it's a raw feeling, a raw situation still. And she asked me how I was and I said, you know, mom, the happiest I've been in a long time. Um, and I, I just think there is power and um, it's freeing when you're finally able to share parts of you. I love that, Tanner. I love the the personal revelation you received. I love when you came out, um, just how freeing that was. And this part of you that had so much shame and so much self-loathing, and you even kept it from God, to be in a situation where you could share it with people and then see how they responded to you and how they continue to love you and support you. And a lot of guests share similar things just, and then I think one of Satan's greatest tools is shame and self-loathing. But if you no longer feel that about you and you realize God loves all of you, then I've noticed people do better in life when they just feel, they feel worthy of God's love. They feel worthy of that connection. The revelation, like you says, flows. You know, some would ask, well, you're getting revelation to date men that's um, not consistent with the teachings of the church. Um, so there's a conflict here between your personal revelation and church teachings. How do you, what do you say to people? And how, do you attempt to reconcile that? Or do you just say, I don't try to reconcile it. This is, you know, and, and people could say things like, well, this is you being deceived or this is, you know, Satan influencing you in an incorrect way off the covenant path. And just how do you handle that in your own mind and with people that reach out? That's a great question. Um, and I think particularly um, poignant when you're talking about bisexuality, because like I said, it does in some ways seem like there's more of a choice than yeah. for someone who is, is gay or lesbian or um, have some other sexual orientation. Um, I don't have a perfect clear cut Sunday school answer for it other than I can, I can say with full confidence of all of my heart that I have the best relationship with heavenly father that I've had my entire life and that he is comfortable and happy with where I'm at right now. Um, I remember just a, a little while ago, I was driving um, driving to church, um, and I, on my ways to church, I say prayers to Heavenly Father of what I'm wanting to get out of that, um, that Sunday, that day. And as I was walking, I was seeing a straight couple walking, or as I was driving, I was past a straight couple walking to church, and they just looked happy. They looked joyful. They They just looked like they were having a good time, and I... And I looked in my rearview mirror and I just thought, Heavenly Father, you know, that's all I want. I just want joy in this life. I just want to share my life with somebody else who accepts me, who loves me, who, you know, affirms who I am. Um, someone, but to also just feel that, that joy in life. And I think we are all deserving um, and loving of and deserving of that. And I don't know that I really had felt that, um, that much. I, I would say I had snippets, but at that point I, I didn't. Um, and in church it was a fast and testimony meeting and I was, 
I was sitting there and I just felt, I had chills and I felt the spirit so strong and I felt love from our Heavenly Father and just the answers of, you're going to be okay. And so I don't have all the answers. I may end up with a man and a husband and, and continue to go through life. I don't know where I will continue to be with the church. Like I said, I'm still figuring out you're everything. Act, you're active in your ward in Logan right now and yes. hold a calling. I am. I'm active. I play the organ, and it's a great a great way for me to serve, and I love that. But church is difficult. Why? Church is really challenging. Um, for a couple of things, it's it's hard being bisexual and hearing and you know thinking, oh, I have this path that I could live the perfect picture, the picture perfect lifestyle of the church, and I could also live a life that um, does not allow me access to the temple or to temple blessings. Um, and like I said, I'm still figuring out my testimony of everything. I'm still in the thick of doing the work to figure out what is true and what is not. Um, I think there's also times where we forget that some people are having a hard time at church. Um, I think sometimes there have been Sundays that I've gone where um, Comments that people have said or even talks that have been given almost vilify um, people who aren't going to church or people who have um, strayed from gospel teachings um, for whatever reasons, for whatever struggles or challenges they are facing. And it's hard to, for me, it's hard to be in a place where I'm struggling accepting and believing everything that's being taught there and then I'm being told oh look at those people and how terrible they are because they aren't doing what we feel is picture perfect and what we feel we should be doing and I would much rather that person comment or talk about here's what I have done to feel joy and hope here's the love of the savior here's the acceptance um I, oftentimes I've listened to a lot of the podcasts and we'll talk about, you know, there shouldn't be a narrowing of the gate when you come to the congregation. Um, but there are times where I felt that, where I felt if I stopped going, these people are going to hate me. Or if I express that I'm struggling, these people will no longer accept me. Or if I express that I'm dating men, which is living outside of, you know, the teachings then almost my love is con gospel conditional. Um, and I would say I felt that sometimes with friends where my love is gospel conditional. Um, and I think maybe that's something that we can do as a little bit of improvement. It's really honest. You're very articulate. Um, <laughs> you're 24, you're a you know, young guy, but these three experiences have stretched you and and caused you to receive to rely on personal revelation because as you point out, there's no, you know, gospel lesson for you. There's no come follow me that goes, okay, that's me. This is how I do it. And I think I've learned, um, and a lot of the guests have taught me this is the importance of personal revelation. We value that so much in our church. Our church is founded on the personal revelation of Joseph Smith. Um, our church is really a means. The goal isn't necessarily to come into the church. The goal is to come into our heavenly parents and the Savior. That is the church in some ways a means to the end. And and so the fact that 
you know, you have such a great relationship with your heavenly parents and the Savior. Um, that that gives me great peace just to trust you. I'm not your bishop or your parents. Um, to just trust you and to continue to encourage you to keep those fundamental blocks in your life that you've had to kind of, they're a little background noise for your <laughs> listeners, um, if you heard that. But just, to, I think that's just part of um, how we support each other is, and I've said this, my personal revelation doesn't give me the right to judge your personal revelation. I just leave that all to Savior's feet and recognize you're walking a road because of things outside of your control that that straight couple you saw on the way to church is not walking. And so, and to just create a kinder, gentler congregational experience. I think we can learn to give talks that we don't create villains and we don't sort of lift ourselves up on the backs of others. We, Because that signals, like you've well articulated, you sometimes feel then that makes me, because I'm one of those people you're talking about, feel less welcome here. So you do a good job of talking. And I just admire you continue to go to church. We don't exactly know all the answers. And um, you're very good at going slow and being thoughtful and not knowing how this is all going to work out, but somehow going slow enough that you recognize it. I will understand. I do like Elder Bednar's talk about fog. And a lot of personal revelation comes where you just take the next step and the fog lifts enough that you can kind of see the next step or two. And um, that is the way personal revelation usually works for me. Um, I I you help me understand why being bisexual is complicated. Will you talk about um, what are some of the negative things that people may say about bisexual people? Um, just things that you've heard or things that people said to you, just so that you can help our listeners to be educated not to say those things. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most powerful one um, for me that is not intentionally meant to be um, hurtful, but is in the constant questioning of, are you sure you're bisexual? Are you sure you're not gay? Um, and that one is a really hard pill for me to swallow and to constantly feel like I have to reaffirm myself. Um, I wish that um, those, those who hear from someone who's coming out from as bisexual, for some people they have to use that as a step to come out as gay or lesbian or, or whatever other sexual orientation. Um, but that's not our job to decide that for someone else. Um, and I wish... When, when I get that question, I never get the, give this answer, but I will in this, in this format. I wish that if somebody were to ask me, Tanner, are you sure you're not just gay or you're not just going to come out as gay? My response would be, no, I've spent years figuring this out. Um, but also on the flip side, if 10 years down the road I do come out as gay, that will, that will be my own choice and my own, I feel like, relationship and revelation um, that comes for me, and it's it's nobody else's position or job to try and do that. Um, and so that's something I think, especially with bisexual people, if we can just reaffirm rather than constantly question if they really know and just let them be them. Um, something else 
Um, I know that is a, is a big concern with bisexuals is just that um, they will be more likely to cheat or to not mm. be fulfilled with whatever partner they have, um, whether they're with a man or a woman, that their just needs won't be met with that gender. And um, I just don't, I don't see it that way. Um, and I think that that can be, I understand where it comes from. I can empathize where people would have that thought, but it just doesn't work that simply for me. Something you and I talked a little bit about um, before we started the podcast was being on the Kinsey scale, maybe where would I rate myself? And I, I struggle explaining bisexuality that way because to me it's not a, I'm 70% straight, 30% gay, or, or whatever percentage-wise you want to look at it. It's I am attracted to just both men and women. And part of who, why I'm attracted to them is because of their gender, you know, whether they are a man or a woman. Um, and so I think even those questions of, well, are you more gay or are you more straight? Just don't, they just don't capture the picture quite well enough. Um, and then the last one I would say is don't assume that because someone's bisexual, their road is easier. I think that is a, a really easy <laughs> assumption to make. Um, but my hope is that, you know, as my, as I share my story, as you hear from other bisexual people, that it's not an easier road and we, we really shouldn't be comparing because even straight people have challenges in life. Um, there are unique challenges to being gay. There are unique challenges to being bisexual, but, um, that doesn't make being bisexual any easier. Great answer, and it helps develop empathy. And I certainly have held some assumptions about bisexual people that bisexual Latter Day Saints have helped me better understand, and and I do better understand that this isn't an easy road. Um, and you're not trying to like bring attention to yourself, but you're just showing your story so that we can better support all Latter Day Saints. President Ballard. I've been thinking a lot about his October, his April conference talk listeners. I've probably referenced every podcast since there, just this need to create a feeling of belonging. I think the church recognizes that not everybody feels like they belong to a congregation. And often it's because of some of the things that you mentioned that you felt. So you, um, and so I think we just, as we're maturing as a church and, and trying to do better, that we can create talks and comments that um, in the back of our mind, we're thinking about how that comment might affect somebody that's on the margins or barely hanging on or um, has a, a testimony with some things that are very, very stable and some things that are a work in progress. Um, that's all I've got um, for you, Tanner, but I want to make sure, you know, there isn't a firm ending time. I want to just see other, other things you'd like to share with our listeners. I'll have one last thing that, that I've thought about and that I'd, I'd like to share. Um, Sister Kieran in May 2018 gave um, a YSA um, devotional. And it, this talk, I, I would recommend almost just about anyone um, about our infinite worth. Um, and it, I've listened to it often, and it's really changed my life. And I wanted to share just a little bit um, about what she says, because she talks about sh struggles and challenges that we have in life. And, and if we were able to design our lives, is that what it would look like? Because I can absolutely tell you, I would not have designed my life to come home early from a mission. I would not have designed my life to deal with chronic pain. 
Um, I would not have designed my life to be bisexual um, in the beginning. I'm learning to love those things about myself. And, and I can say that I love being bisexual. It is something that I am, I am proud of now. And it definitely hasn't always been that way. Um, but she says, um, if we base our worth solely on our achievements, our performance, or our visible perceived gifts, we set ourselves up for failure and disappointment as soon as we don't measure up and come out on top. You know this, but those of you who struggle with it need to hear it often and be reassured of your infinite worth, which is entirely unconnected to your attainments, but intrinsically linked to your relationship with God. What does infinite mean? Unlimited, boundless, without end. Each of you is of unlimited, boundless, endless, endless worth. To whom? To the person who metaphorically, metaphorically calls you names on the playground, or even in my sec, or in my um, situation, who puts you know notes on the back of your shirt. No, you are of unlimited, boundless, endless worth to your Father in heaven, the one who knows you best, no matter what anyone else might think or say about you. Just let the beauty and stillness of that truth weigh on your soul for a moment. You are precious in his sight. Um, and then just to continue, also, um, Sister Craig in uh, October 2020, I loved her talk about eyes to see, um, because I think for a long time I didn't use my eyes to see myself or even my eyes to see others. Um, and so she talks about the power of seeing ourselves, but then she also um, says this, understanding how God sees us prepares the way to help us see others as he does. Wow. Then um, she shares a quote by columnist David Brooks said, many of our society's great problems flow from people not feeling seen and known. There is a core trait that we all have to get better at. And that is the trait of seeing each other deeply and being deeply seen. And when I, as I've read that and studied that and thought about that of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen, that's why I'm here today. It's because I have seen myself deeply of who I am as a, uh, in an eternal perspective, as a, one of God's creations. Also how I see others. Um, I had one friend that I had texted, you know, I'm, I'm bisexual, and I saw them later, a few days later, maybe two or three, um, and she sat down with me, and she just cried, and she just said, I'm sorry. Um, she just, she felt for a moment, for probably about five minutes, we just sat in that moment of her seeing me deeply of the struggles that I'd been through, of the challenges that I'd been through, of the sleepless nights, the frustrations, the tears, the questions, the shame. Um, and I felt seen. And if that, for anyone listening on this podcast, for anyone who has any struggles, whether it is LGBTQ issues, whether it is mental health, whether it's a divorce, pornography, any any challenges that we have, there is so much power in deeply seeing others and being deeply seen. For a lot of my life, I didn't let others see me deeply. And I regret a lot of that. I think my life would have been easier. Um, my connection with my Heavenly Father would have been better sooner. Um, 
my connection with those around me. I could have helped other people more if I had just let them see me deeply and if I had seen them deeply. I'm deeply moved by um, what you just shared from Sister Craig and Sister Kieran and your own thoughts on that. That is powerful stuff. And you could be sitting here at age 64, Tanner, and <laughs> taking you four decades to get to this point. But this is, listeners, where I'm just struck by this rising generation. And some of this rising generation is LGBTQ and their ability to own this, love this part about themselves, get rid of the shame and self-loathing, have a personal relationship, and then look at this as of all these things that make up you and be so positive and happy. It's just, a, it gives me so much hope for the future, so much hope for your life. And you could come back on the podcast every 10 years, Tanner, and I think you would point to this period of time you know, your early 20s to get to this point that just made the rest of your life possible. And I think you have a great life ahead of you. And I think whoever you spend your life with will love everything about you, will love the lessons that came through being an early release missionary, the lessons that have come into your life through your physical illness, the lessons that have come into your life for being bisexual. And that person will be just like you about these things, pleased and recognize that those, the Christ-like attributes, the gifts, the understanding that have come into your life, bless them and bless your future children and make your whole life possible. I think you'll be a great doctor of audiology, but you'll also have just a little something extra that they don't teach in school as part of your work and your profession. So um, listeners, thank you for joining another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love grateful to have Tanner Robinson on the podcast and um, the things that he shared. And I think of those of you that are younger, those of you that where Tanner was before his mission. And I'm just grateful for stories like this that help you wherever you are. Maybe you're in the same spot after your mission or in your forties or fifties. I don't know. Uh, but there's great principles here that give us hope and help us come together as the same human family. So this is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>